Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. One of the most common questions inside the Future Women mentoring sessions relate to being a leader at work and a mum at home. My guest today is the host of the podcast, Australian Birth Stories. Sophie Walker has a master's in public health and is passionate about encouraging pregnant women and their support people to actively prepare for birth. She also has a new book out, The Complete Australian Guide to Pregnancy and Birth. In this episode, we discuss how these experiences fit into our work life and how we decide what to disclose. Sophie also talks about what motherhood will look like in 50 years. Sophie Walker, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Tell us a bit about the podcast Australian Birth Stories and how it came about. Yes, I've been running the podcast for about six years now. And I started the project after having my second little boy. So I've got three boys that are nine, seven and three now. And I had sort of, I was going to say typical, well, one in three women have a traumatic birth. So I guess I'm somewhat typical. My first birth was 36 hours and very hard going. And then I had a really great second birth. And the difference I felt between those was I immersed myself in birth stories, but mostly American or English ones. So I thought after I had my second, I thought, why not create an Australian version that uses, you know, terms and medications we use and references hospitals that we all know and started it just for fun, really, while I was working part time in health research. And it's, yeah, it's grown. I never imagined it to grow the way that it did. And it's just reached 11 million downloads. So definitely resonated. Congratulations. Thank you. What an achievement. I'm not at all surprised that you've had that success because it's such a human experience and it's not something we talk a lot about in general conversation, but it's a conversation women have. I want to ask why you had to go overseas to get birth stories and what that says about us in Australia. Yeah, I think it actually just reflected the the place we were in in podcasting at the time somewhat because it wasn't really big. And I I learned how to do, I'm not techie at all. So I did a podcast course with an American guy who I still talk to. He's very helpful. But it was at the beginning of that whole, I mean, now I feel like every second business has a podcast, but at that time there wasn't nearly as many. I think the, the circles I was running, they talked a lot about birth, but I think you're right that just generally it wasn't quite as common to kind of share the real nitty gritty about how your birth unfolded, unless you're talking to someone who's pregnant and then people open the floodgates. But um, I think there's been a real shift in the years since I started, which is, yeah, really promising. And also before I move on, I want to understand a little bit more about why there was such a difference between birth number one and birth number two? Because you said it's that you immersed yourself in the stories 
Can you elaborate a bit? Yeah, I think there's just, I obviously a firm believer in educating yourself through first-hand accounts. And I think that's really powerful and perhaps why it has resonated so much. But I think the difference for me is going into my first birth, I really went in with one plan. I was going to have no drugs. I was going to take it all in my stride. I was really excited about the challenge of labour. And after 36 hours, I was like, no, uh, bugger this. Hasn't gone the way that I thought. And I'm not trying anymore. I felt like I've exhausted all my tactics and they haven't helped. So then I ended up having the classic cascade of interventions. I had an epidural and forceps and a hemorrhage and yeah, it all kind of went downhill. But I think I went into the second birth much more open-minded because I had explored other options and I thought, okay, if I can't, if things take a turn and I feel like I do need pain medication, then I'm going to ask for this, this and this. And if that happens, then I want this, this and this. And I even entertained the idea of having a cesarean. And I thought if I do have a cesarean, I'd like these options. So I really explored the various possibilities. Whereas the first time I went in with blinkers on and when it didn't go to plan, I was like, well, I haven't got any other options. (laughs) I I still hear that exact story time and time again. Also, you've you've just finished an enormous study into Australian women's birth experiences. Tell us a little bit about what you found. Yeah, we haven't actually finished that yet, so we're exploring it. But I just feel like I've built such a beautiful bond with my audience. And there's like initially I was asking people to come on. Now I'm kind of discouraging people from applying. So there's over 5,000 applications to come on. So the podcast can run on for years to come. But I just felt that I was getting such a huge level of detail from these women that trusted me to kind of hold space for them that I really, I can see a lot of the gaps in our healthcare system and what women are asking for and what we know in, in other research is best practice. And yet we haven't got access to it. So I thought I now, with my public health background, have a social responsibility to kind of use all of this data and all of these stories to help advocate for um, change and better funding and better outcomes. Well, to anyone who's listening, Sophie's got a book coming out. So if you want to know more about her research and Australian birth stories, I would strongly recommend you look up her book. Can I then just talk a little bit about how you manage the trauma of hearing so many birth stories, especially when you had a tough one yourself. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, it's really important. It's very triggering for people. And I've got my own traumatic story. And I think people are very open. And one of my colleagues was working in my LinkedIn account and she said, oh, there's no kind of hello, how are you going? It's straight into I've got a third degree tear and my boobs are this, that and the other. And she said it's she couldn't believe how kind of I think the intimacy of podcasting as well, people feel like your friends because they've listened to your voice for such a long time at such a vulnerable time in their life. But um, yeah, it is it is triggering for me. And it's, I guess, in some ways, it's a bit like someone knocking on your front door and saying, oh, this here's all these things that have happened to me, please help. And I get a lot of that, like, please help. And I, I kind of recognise my own limitations and skill sets. So I'm often referring people to the wonderful organisations that we have in Australia for free access of yeah, like birth trauma organisations and Panda and Cope. There's some fantastic psychologists who are trained in dealing and caring for these people, but it can be very overwhelming. And I think I've had to get to a point where it's not my position to solve all these problems. Like they need the outlet and the and the release, but it's my job to then usher them on to the professionals because I can't take it all on and I certainly can't give medical advice. So I'm very clear with, with everyone about that. Now, many of our listeners are mums and they've come to this episode 
specifically to hear the story of another mum. I want to talk a bit about what it means in the workplace. So how do women today manage these traumatic experiences with their job? Yeah, it's really hard. And I think I think there can be trauma at all stages of a pregnancy too, whether that's miscarriage and early loss or whether it's, you know, getting really difficult results and raising really challenging questions in the pregnancy. My mum's a psychologist and is always teaching us about like just actively listening. And I think it is common for people to want to solve the problems or share their story or recommend their obstetrician or midwife and say, you should do this. Whereas it's really important that you just allow that person to tell you where they're at in their stage and what they are willing to take on. And I guess in the same way, I've learned to kind of be a gatekeeper of how much I emotionally absorb from people that contact me. I think when you're talking about it in a workplace, rather than say, I went to the Epworth and I had a really great experience and you need to book in with so-and-so, you just <laughs> take it back a step and say, how are you feeling? Like, what are your what are your hopes or what are, what are your concerns at the moment? And kind of meet them where they're at rather than assume, you know, what's best for them. What do you do if you're the boss and one of your team members has a baby and tells you it was great? It was all great. My birth was great. I've been around long enough to know that that's not true. A great birth doesn't really happen. They're tough, whichever way you look at it. What do you recommend a boss do in that circumstance? Yeah, again, just recognising that everybody is different and everybody's coming to things with different experiences. I think it can be really challenging and I get feedback that I share a lot of beautifully inspiring birth imagery on my social accounts and people say, well, we all want that beautiful reach up, hold the baby, tears of joy, everybody's happy, but I had an emergency caesarean under general anaesthetic and I find that really upsetting to see that imagery. So I think in the same way of having those discussions, you can be well-meaning to say it can be really great, but it can also yeah, have a negative effect. So I think saying less is more in a lot of senses when in the early stages, I think. What about I, in your case, you went back to work having had a traumatic birth. What would you like to have done or seen that was different when you returned to work? And I'm thinking about all the people that are listening going, how do I be a better boss managing a woman who may have gone through a really traumatic experience yeah. and has got a baby at home and is trying to go back to work? Yeah, yeah. Well, I went back part-time and I was very fortunate to have my mum mind my kids and I was expressing and um, exclusively breastfeeding. So I was doing that juggle of pumping and refrigerating and coordinating feeds and things. But I think I was very fortunate because I worked in a team of other women that had all had children and there was an understanding there of, and I mean, you come back wanting to do the work that you were doing and to utilise, I say in inverted commas, utilise your brain because you're definitely using your brain as a mother, but using your working mind and using your skills you're trained in. But I think there was an understanding in my team that you've always got one part of you that's concerned about the baby or missing the baby or things like that. So I think having a workplace that's accommodating for things such as breastfeeding, if that's what you're wanting to do, and allowing for the flexibility of needing to kind of sometimes go at the drop of a hat. And I think that's challenging now having my own business because I I can recognise from a business point of view that you obviously need to get the work done and you don't want everybody running off at the drop of a hat. But I think recognising that we're not, we're human beings holistically who work and our mothers, we're not kind of just in work mode or just in mother. It's fluid and that you need to be understanding of that. Do you think workplaces have got better or do you think they've pretty much been stuck in the same spot on this stuff? 
I think there's been improvements and I think you've spoke recently to Prue about paid parental leave and discussions at that level of um, changes and miscarriage leave. There's been sort of more recent discussion about that. I think it's hard to say because I think some businesses portray, yes, we're very, you know, breastfeeding friendly or we're very good at accommodating part-time work or job share. But until you're in that organisation and experiencing it and dealing with HR, I don't think we can really know. I mean, I'm very hopeful that a lot of the outwardly discussions are showing there is change. But I think, yeah, until you're in that organisation, you can't really see how well it's working. What do you think workplaces of the future will look like for a new parent? I think COVID has shown us a lot of that um, fluidity between work and family life. I think with all the kind of classic children coming into Zoom meetings and juggling kind of schooling and nursing babies and and seeing that in real life, that kind of mix. I'd, I'd like to see a move away from all the pressure on mothers, again in inverted commas, and look at parenting as a whole across. I sort of, I really... It grates on me the term, you know, hands-on dad and things like that. There needs to really be a continuation of that understanding that the role, and perhaps it's perhaps that's not your family makeup, maybe you're two parents of the same gender, but that the other caregiver having equal responsibility and, and for society to recognise that that's different in every family. For instance, my husband is the stay-at-home dad now. So I was able to come in today because he was managing the kids and I think there's a shift that that's not, as kind of unusual as it used to be. And with paid parental leave accommodating for the non-childbearing parent to stay home, I think there's like positive shifts in that way, but we've got a long way to go. And does it come up in your community? Do you have a lot of conversations about paid parental leave and how much the dads are doing? Yeah, I think it's a real concern. I mean, it's been a bit of a joke. I share a lot on socials. I'm a bit of an oversharer and I've shared our journey of my husband being the stay-at-home dad and he's given himself the term house manager. And we showed some pictures on our holiday recently and someone said, he's accrued a lot of annual leave. He's only just stepped into the role. So it's been a, a bit of a joke amongst my friends and family. But yeah, I think he's demonstrating how beneficial it is in our family and it's been right for us. So I think the more we see it and the more we don't make it unusual, then the more that fathers will step up to that without feeling like a little bit weird or the only dad at the park and that sort of stuff. As you say, I spoke to Prue Gilbert recently about how to tell your boss that you're pregnant. What do you think a leader listening to this podcast should be thinking about when a colleague comes in and says guess what, I'm pregnant. I think we need to really be honest and acknowledge that perhaps their immediate reaction, they might not verbalise it, is like, oh God. And I think when you work in business, it's like, oh, I'm going to have to train somebody. Like maybe in those, instead of going, yeah, you're pregnant, so happy for you. Maybe that's what they say outwardly and inwardly. They're like, oh God, we've got to retrain and restart and how are we going to integrate that? And we've got the big project coming up. And it's always a staff member that you really, really yeah, can't afford to lose. Who <laughs> <laughs> you think really deep down will be a fantastic parent and it is good for them, but not good for you. And you just, you're, you're absolutely right. That thought process it's it's pretty fast with me now. Yeah. I can do that. I can do that transition quite quickly, but it's still there. Yeah. You'll still see with it a on smile. my face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think acknowledging that and then similarly into what I educate with having various options for your own birth in the working relationship, I think that needs to really be honest and open from the beginning because sometimes you could be hoping to perhaps go on maternity leave at 38 weeks and then you have a myriad of issues that mean you need to be on bed rest or you your heart rate has an issue or you have some kind of complication that means you need to wrap up work earlier. So I think kind of laying all that out 
early and saying, okay, so if this happens, we'll do this and let's try and retrain someone by this point. So if you did need to leave earlier, we're kind of set up. Or, but yeah, both parties being honest about the challenges because it is challenging and a transition for you both. I think that really helps when when things do arise and being flexible about appointments. Sometimes you need more appointments than than perhaps the previous colleague who had a really smooth pregnancy and wrapped up at 38 weeks and was back six months later. Not every pregnancy and birth is going to be the same and not every colleague is going to want the same level of participation in that process as well. Like how much contact do you want when you're on leave and all of those sorts of discussions. I think you kind of have to look at it as it's a brand new person in a brand new situation and and tailor it accordingly rather than having kind of a fixed idea of how it might unfold. Do you have any advice to men? Because at FW, we often talk about how men are left out of these conversations. What are you hearing in your community on the topic of how men in the workplace manage a new mum coming back to work for the first time? Yeah, I think it's hard, particularly if perhaps the male involved hasn't got children of their own and so haven't seen the behind the scenes as intimately as somebody else who'd, who's walked that kind of fatherhood role. I think they need to be flexible in their thinking too. We're really moving away from, as I say, just being in the having your work hat on and or having your parent hat on. And I think acknowledging that fathers of today want different things. Like maybe they do want to take the paid parental leave or maybe they do want to work flexible hours so that they can do the bath time at night and make sure, and maybe they don't want to do as many trips into the office. Maybe they don't want to work from home. So being understanding that not only are women changing what they want and how they want things to go, but men similarly are are moving into that role as well. Is there anything that you think managers should look out for that you know, might not be immediately obvious with a with a woman returning to work, and regardless of whether it's a new mum or one who's had three kids but has a traumatic birth, you know, on their fourth, is there any telltale signs that you think we should be aware of and keep an eye out for? Yeah, I think there's a real duty of care. I don't think there's the extra expectation that a CEO should be fantastic at perhaps reading the signs of, you know, particular medical conditions or things. But I think there is a trend, and I don't know if this will be a popular view. In my experience, coming across a lot of type A kind of really driven, career driven women find the postpartum period really hard because they're used to having key targets and metrics and just like we do a meeting and we learn that and parenthood, there's no, there's, I mean, I've written a book, but (laughs) (laughs) there's not a hard and fast manual that says do all of this and by seven o'clock they'll be asleep. And I think that can really derail people that are used to being high flies at work. And I think that has been, I've had a really beautiful interview with a lady who's a lawyer and she's like, I can do these incredibly difficult cases and work crazy hours. And then she ended up needing to go into a mother baby unit to help with her baby. And she's like, how come I can't look after a baby, but I can do all of these amazing things at work. And I think that can be common in a kind of, in a professional woman moving into motherhood, obviously not everybody's in that category, but it can fall that way. And similarly, it can be people who aren't working in the profession that still need that care. But I think the CEO needs to work out what's reasonable expectation wise. And if they see that their colleague isn't perhaps themselves or isn't performing or is perhaps trying to work at the level they were before, I think you just need to check in with each other there and just see what's what are realistic expectations and be mindful that, yeah, it's a whole new chapter that they're navigating both physically and emotionally and um, being considerate of that process.
So you've got three beautiful boys. You've got your own company. You've got your own book. Yep. Congratulations Thank on you. all of that. How would you describe your leadership style, both at home and at work? I'm a bit shouty at home as a mother, I must say. <laughs> but I think I was chatting to one of my colleagues. I said, well, how would you describe me? Because I think I have an unusual setup with it. I've got about four people that work with me regularly and I feel like we're friends and we talk a lot. I probably talk to them more than I do friends and family. And I think our biggest challenge is having boundaries because it's such a beautiful project and we all want better outcomes for women in this space and I'm working with other mums and I feel like there's a real vested interest in it to the point where we all work a bit too hard. And I'm like, actually, you should stop working now. Like, let's do that tomorrow or we'll do it next week. But I think we work really collaboratively and flexibly. And I never imagined I'd have my own business. And I really just worked on like working under people suited me. And I feel the weight of making big challenging business decisions, but I feel like my team is really, yeah, we work really cohesively together and I love learning what they're learning too. So I respect their skill set, but I also want to really be across different things. I've really immersed myself in PR recently. She said I'm quite humble. I don't know if that's accurate as well, but it makes working together quite flexible and easy. So I feel like I haven't had to fire anyone or have any real clashes, but I've really hired on gut instinct and recommendations. So I think I've been quite lucky. Have you done any work on leadership and thought about it much and started to read books of how to best manage people? No, but I think I'm feeling a bit more of the weight recently of like, okay, um, if things don't go well, I mean, they are going well at the moment, but that weight of my other full-timer has four children. So I feel like, well, if things don't go well and I can't pay her salary, she's got a mortgage and kids to look after. So the weight of that responsibility is starting to feel more significant. But I kind of have just been learning everything on the go. So it's, it could be the next thing to learn. I've done a lot of kind of training in web design and things like that, but I haven't done a lot of team management. So maybe that's the next step for me. Oh, look, I was only saying this morning that running a business is, it's such a nuanced thing. Any one decision goes wrong or something's out of kilter and everything can fall over. So I totally understand where you are at. What sort of leaders do you admire? I think there's some fantastic women out there that I'm sort of aspiring to do good work and really get changed through the way that they have. There's Georgia Dent. I don't know if you've done work with Georgia. I feel like she works tirelessly at the really hard issues. Like I feel like there's a place for petitions and kind of rallies, but I think she does the really hard work behind the scenes and she's worked solidly to get extended paid parental leave and talk to a lot of the politicians. And I think we all can contribute in various ways, but she's done a lot of the really hard work and we should all be appreciative and she's probably not a household name, but she should be. I couldn't agree more. I only came across her, I guess, probably five or six years ago in person. I'd heard of her as a journalist, but you're 100% right. She does the pointy end of policy that actually leads to legal reform and or to laws being changed and is right at the forefront of it and is very widely respected and has done an amazing job. I don't yeah. know how many children she has. Quite a no, few. No, yeah. And More I think, than you think it's possible and to do the work she's done. And I think she's sacrificed knowing she's trying to get a lot of this stuff for other people but at the expense of the challenges herself. So we, we really should take our hats off to her. And other people like Larissa Waters, and I've gone straight into politics really, but her breastfeeding in Parliament really went right across the world and drew attention to that and it's kind of, it was kind of funny how, almost funny how people were like, oh my goodness. I was like, yeah, well, this is just a natural part of 
of life for so many of us and yet she just reintroduced it as a working mother in a high-profile position. I really love Jacinda Ardern. I've been a big supporter of everything she's done and her approach in a kind and feminine way. She was obviously pregnant during her leadership and had her baby, but I feel like she embraced her feminine strengths rather than tried to be one of the boys in the boys' club. Well, it's certainly they've shown it's possible. And in the area that you're working in, obviously you're on your way to doing just that. But I'm interested to know your thoughts on doing it all. I mean, Jacinda Ardern, that's a big thing that she did. Do you think there are a bunch of your community out there going, oh, that's great for her, but there's no way I could be prime minister and manage a pregnancy. And so therefore there's extra they put extra pressure on themselves. Mm. Is there is there a bit of a balancing act with how you talk about someone like that? Yeah, and I think initially when she did it, my youngest is similar age to hers, and I think because I was in the thick of it and I was taking time off, I thought, oh, well, my my initial kind of instinctual thing was she should be at home looking after her baby. I was like, oh, where's the feminist in me? Like, And then thought, oh, no, yeah, that's the changing face. And her husband was really wanting to do that role and she had incredible work to do that she knew she wanted to do. And she has shown us that their dynamic has worked. But I think the main difference today is I feel like in politics, I don't know, I guess it's mostly men, wait till the very last day till everyone in the boardroom says, please go. Where she said, I've realised that I've kind of reached my limit of capacity and I've done a lot of wonderful things and there's a lot more that I'd like to do, but I know for myself and my family, now is the time for me to step down. And I feel like that should be applauded. Well, I'd also highlight Tanya Plibersek, who did it after she and Bill Shorten lost the election and she was deputy leader and she would have been deputy prime minister had they won. And she stood back. Yeah. And said, my family needs me now. And it's not very often you hear that from a male leader. It's true. This is a really tough question, but I am so keen to hear your answer to this. What will motherhood look like in 50 years? Yeah, it's, I really thought, my initial thing was like, the Jetsons? Like, will we all be in? <laughs> Why is she asking that? I don't want to answer that. No, no. <laughs> I've, I read a lot about just kind of the patriarchal structure of motherhood and the term motherhood. And, and someone controversially said today, you know, I love being a mother, but I hate motherhood. Not the role of mothering, but the term, the overarching term of, and the expectation that we can do all of these things and that it comes instinctively and that it flows and we should be able to aspire to do all the things to work and, and the classic juggle. Taking that pressure off women and look more at the family unit and distributing that, I was going to say burden then, I feel burdensome sometimes. It's the end of the school holidays. (laughs) No, but the bulk of the workload, not just in like doing the washing and stuff, but the actual listening to the stories at the end of the day and helping make resilient kind of great people that are going to run the planet after us. It's it's a, a huge, it's the mother load and it should be distributed, I think. So I hope by, yeah, in 50 years when my children have probably got their own children, yeah, that that is more evenly shared. And as a family, you choose to have children and it it shouldn't just all fall on the woman. Like biologically, we carry the child, but I think once they're out, we can really work together. And there are shifts in that. And I look forward to seeing that really make a significant change by in 50 years. What will your three sons be doing, do you think, when they have a family? 
And have you got oh, them all sorted out already? Yeah, well, Amaya, I feel like my firstborn is very classically like worries and tries to keep everyone in line. <laughs> but I'm not really sure. They're very interesting characters. I've got no idea what the three-year-old will be able to pull off. I read recently that if you kind of nurture them well in the nest, when they leave the nest, then they come back to kind of roost. Or, and I just hope that with boys, I think everybody says to me in this work, oh, it's a shame you haven't had a girl. You can't help a girl through a pregnancy and stuff. But I've got beautifully emotionally available sons and I hope that they're a gift to have whatever families they want to or not have in the future. But I'm just trying to build kind of emotionally available, resilient young men. Tell me what next for you? What does success look like for Australian birth stories? I feel like over and over again in all the stories, people are saying, I just wish I had continuity of care or I wish I had a better relationship with my care provider. And the reality of that is that we don't have the funding or the midwives. The midwives are burning out at a crazy rate, understandably, under the system. If we support that system to give women better options and better access to publicly funded care, I had all three of my boys under the care of midwives in the public system. And I feel like if that's the option you want, we need to make that available. And I really hope to see that. And I think I'm going to channel all those voices and try and get it statistically significant to do things the way that Georgie's done and really get change in Parliament. So I look forward to doing that. I'm also very interested and conscientious about the environment. So we're making the organisation B Corp certified and we're really trying to only align with partners who work with us that are, yeah, environmentally sound and really working towards the same goal so that all these children that are being born have got an environment to grow up in. Sophie Walker, it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and to hear about your success on the podcast and now your growing business. Looking forward to hearing about how those young men that you're building (laughs) there grow up and uh, to see what they do. But thank you for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. Thanks very much for having me. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 